Well, friends, let's pray together. Father, we pray that this morning that you would open our ears so that we might hear you. God, would you open our minds so that we may know you. And Lord, we pray that most of all that you would open our hearts so that we may love you more this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout this summer, we have been going through a sermon series in which we've been looking at a number of different psalms. And the last few weeks, we've actually been looking at psalms of lament. Today, however, we're going to shift gears slightly. For the next three weeks, we're going to step out of the Old Testament and we're going to step into the New Testament. And we're going to look at a book in the New Testament that honestly, quite often gets overlooked too often. If you have your scriptures with you today, let me invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Now, Jude is a small book. It sits at the very end of the Bible, just before Revelation. Depending on the font size of your Bible, it might actually only take up one page. Now, I know this might seem like a random detour in the middle of our series on the Psalms, but here's why I want us to spend a little bit of time in Jude. One thing that the Psalms give us, particularly the Psalms of Lament, is a, a language with, which with uh, to pray to God in the face of a chaotic world. And the world, we can tell, is pretty chaotic. It's pretty chaotic. And that chaos can be overwhelming. But the question I want us to ask this morning is, what do we do when that chaos that's in the world finds its way into the church? What do we do when the chaos that's in the world seeps its way into the church? And let's be honest, the church does have its own bit of chaos. You don't have to look too hard to see that the church actually is in a lot of turmoil. Denominations are splitting over a lot of different things. Even our own existence as king of kings has come about because in the Anglican communion, there are deep divisions over whether or not we can remain faithful to historic orthodoxy in the face of all the social change. But again, we're not the, we're not the only church. Many churches are, are, are dealing with these kinds of struggles. And let me tell you, the media loves it. You just, turn on the, you just turn on the news or on Facebook and you see it all over the place. The media loves it when the church is in chaos, when the church divides, when there's scandals, when, there is, uh, when there's, when there's uh, sexual scandals or financial scandals, when a celebrity pastor falls. The world loves it because the world loves to say to us, see, you're just like us. There's no difference. Well, when the world is not able to say, hey, you're just like us, usually what they're saying is, why can't you be more like us? Why do you have to do the things that you do? Why do you have to see the world the way that you see the world? Why can't you just be more like us? Well, the answer to that question is actually pretty easy. The answer to the question of why the church must be different is actually for the sake of the world. It's for the world's sake that the church is the way the church is. The, the theologian by the name of Stanley Hauerwas loves to say that, that the church must be the church so that the world can know that it is the world. Now what he means is that only as the church lives its life in accordance with the gospel that the world can see the contrast. 
The church is that which worships God, and in so doing, it finds life. And the world is everything that does not worship God. And in so, and in, and in so it goes its own way, and it leads to death and destruction. Moreover, the world loves to do all that it can to influence the church, to, to make the church be more like itself. And that's when problems arise, because the problem is, is that when the living church imitates the dying world, they both die. So I, honestly, I look around at the, all the chaos of the world. I get on Facebook and Twitter and whatever else, and, and I see the chaos, and then I look around at all the chaos that's really that's seeping into the church. But then I can turn to the book of Jude, and honestly, I can find hope. Because Jude's letter, which was written about 2,000 years ago, reads like it was written to us today. And that's because the same thing that the church, the church was dealing with in Jude's time is actually this very same thing that we're still dealing with in our day. Now, sometimes that could be a cause for despair, like, really, we're still dealing with this stuff? Really? However, it reminds me of the words of Jesus when he is talking to Peter, and he says, he says, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I read the book of Jude, and I realize the church the gates of hell has not prevailed against the church then, and it's not prevailing against the church now. And so Jude, I think in our day, with all the things that we're dealing with, is a letter that we need to hear. We need to hear the message because it gives us hope. So with that, let me invite you to turn to the book of Jude if you're not already there. Again, it's the second to last book of the Bible. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time uh, starting right in verse 1. Now Jude... Like I said, it's pretty short. There's only 25 verses or so in, in, in the book. And today we're going to be in verses 1 through 4, which will give us a really good kind of overview, good introductory uh, uh, time for, for all the, the themes that he's dealing with. Next week, we're going to look at verses 5 through 19. And let me tell you, we're going to get really deep really quickly. There's a lot in verses 5 through 19, lots of woes and condemnations and and, you know, a lot of fun stuff. We're going to look at that next week. Well, then in two weeks, we're going to come back to verses 20 through 25. And Jude's going to wrap this up, and he's going to show us why we can have hope in the face of all of this. So that's where we're headed. So let's start at the beginning. Jude, verse 1. Jude starts out like this. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, let's just stop there for a second. You can learn a lot about a person by the way that they introduce themselves to you. Jude introduces himself here at the very beginning, and the way that he does so actually sets the tone for the entire letter. You see, he tells, he tells us that he's the brother of James. The traditional reading of that is that this James that Jude is the brother of is the, is the one who was the leader of the church of Jerusalem that you see in Acts. And that particular James is the half-brother of Jesus himself. So by deduction, Jude, and there's great evidence to, to, to suggest that the traditional reading of Jude is accurate, Jude is the younger brother of Jesus. Now it says a lot about Jude that he doesn't tell us at the beginning that he's Jesus' brother. He could claim a pretty high authority for himself saying, hey, I'm Jesus' brother, you need to listen to me. But he doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he says, I am the servant of Jesus Christ. I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. 
Your version may have, may say slave or bond servant, but it's basically someone whose, whose will has been given up to the will of another. Now, let's ask this question. How do you serve Jesus? How do you serve Jesus? Well, one of the most important ways that you serve Jesus is actually by serving his people. The church is the body of Christ, and as such, as you serve the church and as you serve his people, you serve Christ. Jesus said that whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Back to, the, back to Jesus' conversation with Peter. He starts off and he says, he says, Peter, do you love me? And of course, Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. And so Jude is actually telling us here at the very beginning that he's serving Jesus, and as such, he is actually serving us, the church. So as, his, as the servant of Jesus, he is coming alongside those whom Jesus loves, supporting us and encouraging us in our times of trials and our times of struggles that we're facing. Now, moreover, Jude, in introducing himself as Jesus' servant, is actually doing something very important. He is setting himself up against the people who are causing problems in the church. And here's how. Skip with me, if you will, down to verse 4. In verse 4, Jude tells us, he says, Look, certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, who were long ago designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And by doing so, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So the church in Jude's day, as I mentioned, is facing this turmoil. And it's a very similar turmoil that that we're facing in the church today. These certain people, these ungodly people, are usually labeled as false teachers. We call them false teachers because they're teaching things that are not in accordance with the gospel. And as we're going to see tomorrow, or or tomorrow, next week, not tomorrow, (laughs) next Sunday, um, as we're going to see next Sunday, they're actually claiming an authority in order to teach the things that they do. Now, Jude is going to tell us that their authority is actually an improper authority. It's improper because what they teach only serves the teachers and not the church. And as you know, in the kingdom of God, authority gets redefined. Again, back to Jesus' words. He says, he says you're, not to lord, you're not to lord your authority over others the way that earthly authorities do. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you must be the servant of all. And so Jude is setting himself up as a servant of all against those who are coming in and causing problems and claiming an authority to do so. I'm going to skip around just a little bit in these four verses. So let's stay right here in verse 4 for just a minute. And I want us to get just a clear picture of who are these ungodly people and what is it exactly that they're teaching? Well, at this particular period in, in, in the church history, in its infancy stages, church structure and church form and, and, and organization was still in formation. Not every church had, a, had one specific lead pastor that did all of the teaching. It was still in formation. Because of that, it was very common for itinerant preachers and teachers to go around to different churches and, 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 and stay with them for a little bit, help them, them grow in the faith and, and be built up. In fact, you see uh, the great Apollos who shows up all throughout the New Testament. He was such a teacher. Well, a teacher would come to a church in some city 
and they would claim some authority. They would have some air of piety to them, an air of devotion, and they would be welcomed in, and they would begin to teach. Well, as you can tell, this, would, this kind of system would lend itself to abuse pretty easily. And that's what's going on here. That's how these people would creep in unnoticed. And then as they would be welcomed in, they would start teaching things, like I said, that is, a cor- that is not in accordance with the gospel, that is not in accordance with the things that the Christians learned at their conversion, and it would cause confusion, and it would cause doubt, and it would lead people back into ungodly lifestyles and to down destructive paths. So what exactly then were they teaching? Well, Jude goes on in verse 4 and he tells us. He says, they were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Well, how do you do that? Grace, as we know, is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. One commentator says it like this. It says, grace is the free favor of God of which the Christian experiences through Jesus Christ, forgiving him, liberating him from his sins and the consequences of the sin, and his consequences of sins. The consequences of our sin is that we are destined for, for hell. But grace comes and it wipes away all the consequences of sin. But these ungodly people that Jude is warning us against, they're saying that the grace of God is being perverted into sensuality. That's the ESV translation. Your, transla- your translation may say something like, like immorality or promiscuity or licentiousness. The idea is a sexual immorality that he's actually talking about here. The idea is that these teachers were coming in and saying, God's grace, God's grace is so great that we can do whatever we want to do. Praise Jesus. Okay, now maybe that might be a little too simplistic, but the idea is that, that grace, the belief was that grace does away with the law and therefore it does away with all the moral demands of the law or at least the ones that are governing sexual morality, and makes them just no longer pertinent. There's a name for this type of thinking, and you can impress your friends at parties with this name. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. And it is the belief that Christian freedom gives us license to live however we want to live because the things that were sins under the law are now, under grace, no longer sins. And as such, there's no consequences for them. So, don't, so you don't have to worry about, say, confessing sins or repenting because God's grace does away with all of that. Well, if you remember in Paul's letter to, the, to Romans, in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul addresses this pretty specifically. People were saying, well, then should I sin so that grace may abound? You know, should we go on sinning then? And Paul says, no, may it never be. He then goes on to explain that because, that's because the, the sins that are sins under the law really are still sins. It's just that God's grace gives us freedom from those sins. Not freedom for the sins, but gives us freedom from the sins because sin enslaves us, as Jordan was saying earlier. Sin enslaves us, and that enslaving actually leads us to death. But grace gives us freedom. And the reason why it gives us freedom is because it leads us to life. And so to even say something like, hey, freedom to sin means that we 
have freedom to live however we want, really doesn't actually make sense if you understand the terms. But that's what Jude is saying that these people are teaching us, and of course, it was obviously causing great confusion, and it was leading people astray. In fact, it was leading people back into lifestyles from which they were called out of. So that's verse 4. And Jude's telling us that that's what he's setting him, that's the purpose of his letter because these people have come in and they're teaching things that are contrary to the gospel. Let's jump back up to verse 1 because Jude continues after introducing himself with something that is very, very important. Jude's going to continue in verse 1. He's going to say, Jude, servant of Jesus, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in, Christ the, and beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Unlike Paul and some other New Testament writers, who when they introduce their gospels or, or their, their, their epistles, they usually, tell, they usually tell you who it's being written to. They usually say, you know, Paul to the church in Ephesus or to the church in Rome. Well, Jude doesn't actually do that. He doesn't give us any, anything specific. It's not important necessarily which city that this church is in, but it's how he describes Christians. Because in the face of these false teachers, Jude is about to, to encourage us to do something. And whenever you see in the New Testament that a writer says, hey, you need to do something, or you need to not do something, or you need to live in a certain way, they always start off calling us back to the truth of who we are in Christ. Because one of the biggest, uh, one of the most important aspects of the gospel is that we are given a new identity. In Christ, we are made new. For example, sinners become saints. Enemies become friends. Strangers become children. We are given a new identity in the gospel, and then it is from out of that new identity that we are called to live. And so Jude is doing that here. So he's starting here at the very beginning, reminding us of who we are in Christ. At first he says, we are called. Now, calling is a very prominent way throughout the New Testament to describe believers. They're called. Well, what does it mean to be called? Another way of saying being called is to be invited. You are invited out of something into something new. Think of the parable that Jesus talks about at the, the wedding feast, where a ma the master of the house throws a, a great feast. He sends out invitations and nobody comes. And so he tells his servant, I want you to go out to the highways and to the byways and everybody that you see, I want you to invite them in to this feast. And so the servants do that. And so I love that picture of salvation as being called. We're, we, we were in one state, and now we're called to live in a much different place. He goes on then, and he tells us that we are loved in the Father, or your translation may say, beloved in the Father. What he is doing is he's pointing to another fundamental aspect of our new identity, that we are children of God, that we are children of God. We have, we have been called from who we were, enemies, we were made children, and that means that now we have all the rights and all the privileges of a child in his father's house. We are now children of God, and we are loved in such a way as, as fathers love their children. Being loved as children of God is central to our, our identity. And then it's important for the, for the third thing that he calls us. He says that we are kept. 
he points out to the fact that we are kept. Another way to translate that is that we are guarded or we are taken care of. We are protected. Friends, when things in our lives get chaotic, it is normal to feel anything but safe, to feel anything but protected. Jews wanted to remind us, before he goes on and gives us this descriptions that he's going to give us, that in the midst of all things that we're about to face, and that we face, that God is the one who is protecting us. Because God is the one who loves us like a father. Because God is the one who called us and brought us into the place where we are now. It's, remind, it's, a, it's a good reminder of Paul's words in, uh, in, in Romans where he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor heights nor depths nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers, a whole list of stuff that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's a reminder. And so Paul reminds us, uh, Jude reminds us, right before he encourages us to do something, of who we are and because of who God has made us to be. So now that Jude has reminded us of who we are, now he's going to get to the heart of his letter. So in verse 3, verse 3, he jumps down and he says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once, deliver, once for all delivered to the saints. Jude tells us that he wanted to write a letter about one thing, our common salvation. Now, we don't know exactly the details of what he really wanted to write. But he found it most urgent to write to us about something else, to, to contend for the faith. There's an urgency in his language. It's the, and it's the heart of the whole letter. Okay, now what does he mean by contend for the faith? How do you do that? The Greek word contend is where we get our English word to agonize. It's the word that we get agonize. I want you to agonize for the faith. What that means is Jude is calling us, he's going to call us to fight for the faith with everything that we have in us. Striving for a goal like, 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 an, athlete, like an athlete. You give everything that you have that is in you to contend for this faith. In our culture today, particularly in, Christ, in Christian culture today, we love to talk about defending the faith. We use that phrase a lot. We want to defend the faith. Now that comes from the New Testament. It comes from, from 1 Peter where Peter says, I want you to be, I encourage you to be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for the hope that, was, that is in you. The Greek word for defense at that, in that context is the word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. And apologetics, as you know, is kind of like philosophical answers to philosophical challenges to the Christian faith. I am all for that. That definitely has its place. I love apologetics. However, that's not what he's talking about here. Also, too often when we talk about defending the faith, we sometimes unwittingly talk about it, talk about the faith as if it is this helpless victim that we need to kind of keep locked away, guarded, protected, so that we can fight for it. Because if we don't fight for it, then the world's going to come in and it's going to just be destroyed. 
Maybe that's hyperbole, but too often we think of it as something that we have to do to defend the faith. In the 19th century, the, the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was always, always excellent with his illustrations, he addresses this. He has this great quote, and it goes like this. He says, look, the word of God can take care of itself. And we'll do so if we preach it and cease defending it. Think of a lion. They have a lion caged up for his own preservation. They've got the lion shut up behind closed, behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See, there's a, a band of armed men gathered to protect this lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and their spears, these mighty men intent on defending a lion. And in his words, he goes, O fools, you slow of heart, open the door, let the Lord of the forest go forth free. Who would dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all of its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. I love his language. And I really just needed needed an excuse to use that illustration. But what Spurgeon was talking about is actually more in line with what Jude is talking about in contending for the faith. And what he simply means is by preaching the gospel, letting it out, and letting the gospel do its work. It doesn't necessarily need our defending and our protecting. It just needs to be let out. Now with that, at this, point in the, at this point in the letter, Jude's not going to give us much more detail about what he actually means when he says, contend for the faith. If you want to read ahead, I encourage you to do so. He doesn't, it's going to be not until verse 20 that he actually starts to come back to this idea of, conven- of uh, contending for the faith, that he starts to give us some details of what that actually means. So in your home, I encourage you over a cup of coffee to, to, to look ahead. We're going to come back to that in two weeks when we talk about contending for the faith. But in closing this morning, I want us to point to the second part of this phrase. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What exactly are we talking about when he says the faith? Now, when we think of the faith, we think of, of, of doctrine and theology In just a couple minutes, I'm going to invite you to stand and confess your faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Creeds are important, and in general, all of that is part of what we mean by the faith. However, Jude is talking about something much more specific. By the faith, he simply just means the pure gospel. He simply means the gospel. It's the good news of God's saving work through Jesus Christ. The reason why you you see the gospel Uh, denoted as the faith, and you see this all through the New Testament, is because the gospel itself is a message that demands a response. And the response that it demands is that it be received by faith. And so all through the New Testament, the gospel is is called the faith, and that's what he's talking about here. It tells us that we are loved by God, even to the point of death, and it calls us out of slavery into a new and living life. And it assures us by Jesus' resurrection that 
God will com- that God will complete what he started and will bring us to eternal life. And so that's the faith that Jude tells us was delivered once for all to the saints. Now the Apostle Paul says something very similar at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died in according with the, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This good news of salvation through Christ's blood, Christ shed blood on the cross, and his resurrection is what, from the very start, has been passed on. It's the same message then, and it's the same message that has been passed down to generations, and that the same message that we have received and are to pass on. Paul tells us that Christ died and he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. What that phrase means is that, is that you see this all throughout the Old Testament, that this was God's plan all along in his formation of Israel, in, his, in the death of Israel's Messiah, through all of that, that the whole world might receive salvation. It was God's plan all along. It wasn't stuff that we made up. And that's kind of key here. We don't make this stuff up. It's when we start making things up that we get into problems. And believe me, people like to make things up. Anytime there's something controversial that happens in the world, all of a sudden people become experts on, the, on, on, on Bible translation. All you have to do is just get on Facebook and everybody who, even people who never read the Bible, all of a sudden they're experts, right? It's easy to, to want to make things up because it actually seemingly is easier. Because, the, because grace actually does make demands on us. Grace really does make demands on us. And that's actually good because the demands that it makes pulls us out of slavery and leads us into life. That's, and that's the point of the good news. That's the point of the whole gospel is life. We don't always like to hear it because in order to, in order to receive this good news, this new life, something has to be given up. Something has to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century German theologian in his, in his classic book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, has this great line. He says, look, when, a, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. He's just echoing the words of Jesus where Jesus says, look, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. You must take up your cross and follow me. Bonhoeffer calls this, Bonhoeffer calls the, the type of grace that is being promoted in the book of Jude, he calls it cheap grace. His famous definition of cheap grace is this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and ultimately grace without Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what Jude is going to warn us about in the rest of his book. It's this antinomian, licentious lifestyle that 
that was being promoted in the church today under the guise, uh, or the church then under the guise of grace, and we're still seeing this antinomianism uh, being promoted in the church in our own day. And friends, it is no grace at all. In fact, it is anything but gracious, and it is definitely not loving, because all it does is simply encourages, encourages us to just remain in the things that are ultimately destroying us. However, Grace is costly because it tells us to leave all of that behind so that we might be able to find life. And that grace is for us, and as we live in that grace, then we can show the world that they're not living in that grace. And we can call the world, and we can call the world up to something much better, to a life that is much more abundant, which is the life that God called us to. So that's where we're going over the next couple weeks. When we look at Jude, Jude is going to going to warn us against a lot of things, particularly next week, that are going to be very hard to hear. But it's going to also be no coincidence that at the end of the letter, we get one of the most beautiful hymns of praise that is found anywhere in the entire scriptures. And that's not a coincidence. Because once we are reminded of how far grace has gone to pull us out and to pull us up from where we were, it can lead us to nothing but praise, praise and gratitude. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.